Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 57th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Jules Pieri, co-founder and CEO of The Gromit. The Gromit is a community that has reshaped the way people discover, share, influence, and buy products online. The company's mission is rooted in what they call citizens' commerce, and they have helped launch many products that are now household names like Fitbit, SodaStream, OtterBox, Swell Water Bottles, and many more. To kick off our interview, I asked Jules about the shoes. It is a story about Jules and how she was pounding the pavement in the early days of building the grommet to the point where she wore out these shoes and they fell apart right before a meeting with potential investors. It is a legendary story of entrepreneurial grit and perseverance that is common throughout not only Jules's professional career, but her whole life. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Jules's background growing up in Detroit and the early foundational years, her work on the iconic Reebok pump sneaker, what she learned working very closely with legendary tech CEO Meg Whitman, the details on the Gromit, a successful consumer marketplace that is now majority owned by Ace Hardware, her scrappy PR strategy, and how she's been able to get coverage in major publications like the New York Times, Fortune, Inc., and many others. Advice for entrepreneurs, especially women, who are raising venture capital, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Thank you for listening to the VentureViz podcast. It has been a lot of fun interviewing all these inspirational entrepreneurs and investors. My goal for these interviews is to not only share the journey of these individuals, but to also gather useful pieces of advice that you can also use for your own journey. If you've been enjoying these podcasts and finding them useful, then please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes, and please also help us spread the word about this podcast by sharing it with your friends and colleagues in the industry. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jules. Jules, thanks for joining us. So glad to be here. All right, to kick things off, um, I wanted to talk about something that is almost like an artifact and a symbol for you and your company. There's uh, th- there's these pairs of shoes, there's a pair of shoes that, that I, I read about. And I, can you tell me the details on the shoes? Uh, yes. So um, in the early days of the business, when I was truly pounding the pavement, uh, literally and figuratively, I was uh, in Kendall Square walking between two um, venture capital pitches I needed to give. And as I started to cross the street, my shoes, which were kind of a black, um, almost like a platform shoe, started disintegrating, literally on the sidewalk. <laughs> At first, I like thought maybe I was stepping on something because the ground felt different. And then I realized my shoes were just falling apart underneath me. Like literally pounding the pavement, wearing down your shoes to the point where they disintegrated. (laughs) I know. It was like, you know, a Hollywood moment, but it was real life and and in a in a bad way, I suppose. So the second appointment was actually at Charles River Ventures and I ended up um like sort of like standing on my toes, pretending I had heels left on my (laughs) shoes. And um and I thought when I got home that night, you know, they were completely gone, the shoes. I almost threw them away and I said, no. I took a picture of them. I saved them because this is exactly what my life feels like it, it, writ large through my footwear. I th- and that's why I wanted to start off with the, about your shoes because it, that's such a symbol of like entrepreneurialism and it's it's not easy. Even though you read these stories of these unicorn companies and it just seems so simple, yet it is so incredibly hard. And I thought those shoes were so symbolic of just that. Yeah, exactly. I'm proud of them actually, you know, yeah. that we got through that and, you know, the central entrepreneurial quality has to be perseverance um, above all. So it's rare you get a physical expression of that, but I do. Well, let's go go back. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in the city of Detroit. And what did your parents do for work? Um, My dad was a tool maker at Ford Motor Company in a transmission plant. They made transmissions, giant plants, so big that you you had to, you know, roller skate or bike across it. Like if you looked down an aisle, you couldn't see the other side. Mm -hmm. And my mother, um, after early career as a bank teller, really stayed at home until um, I'm the oldest of four, until the youngest one was, you know, kind of on her way in school. And one of the things that... um, I picked up on in, in elementary school, 
you were fascinated by biographies and you'd read pretty much everyone you could get your hands on. So were any of those books that you kind of still think about today as far as different biographies that you read? Yeah, I was super inspired by many of them. Um, but the books that I you know, really remember were definitely I would read anything I could about Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. There was something about her um, breaking some of the first lady molds, but her uh, like deep moral underpinning to everything she did that resonated with me. So that definitely she was the top of the pack. I I um, was inspired by Abraham Lincoln, and it was more the rags to riches. Well, not so much riches, but rags to like improbable fe- pre- being the president. Because mm-hmm. he used to um, like sit with his um, feet to a, the fire with like holding a book, reading the book in his feet, kind of like if you can imagine that posture because it kept him warm. Right. And <laughs> before I read the book, I was already doing that with like the hot air registers in my Detroit home because our home had no insulation. It was really cold in the winter. So I'd like literally sit on the floor with the book propped up against the register. And then I read Abe Leak and did the same thing. I was like, oh, he's my guy. I love that guy. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, those then, two definitely. And then when you were young, again, I think you were 14 years old you figured out that you wanted to further your education by sending yourself to boarding school. So so how did you figure that out? (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't have done it on my own. I was, um, you know, I was in a rough, increasingly kind of deteriorating public school system. Mm -hmm. And I spent three years in junior high, just sort of looking out for my, you know, my safety. Mm -hmm. My brother, who's a big guy, came to the school a year after I did. And and told my parents, like, if they didn't get him out of there, he, you know, he, he wouldn't last. And, but I lasted. Uh, I think boys were worse targets. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really want four more years of that, three more years of that in high school. And um, so I spoke to a teacher about doing uh, an application for a D- Detroit public school that was an exam school. And she encouraged that. But she said, hey, did you hear about this private school. She named a, a school in the suburbs where all the um, auto execs children went called Kingswood Cranbrook. And um, I was so clueless, but I, I knew my parents would not think this was a great idea. So I snuck uh, downstairs in the basement where we had a phone and I called the school and I got an application and I I filled it out and I took the whole thing as far as I could on my own um, until they had to like take me to the school for an exam and fill out financial aid forms. And, um, you know, it worked. I got in, I got a great scholarship. And honestly, I give a lot of credit to my parents in that scenario. I know, you know, it's an unusual 13-year-old that does that kind of thing. But I have three sons. And if one of my (laughs) 13-year-olds tried to eject themselves out of the home and go to boarding school, I don't know that I would have been so generous about that proposal. And and obviously you... um you know, got a scholarship and everything. It's just like, it's amazing. So uh, it just shows your, your drive at a very early age of trying to just something that you want, you go and get it. Yeah. But the thing I learned though, um, you know, obviously I got some role models for drive and ambition out of the books, but that's pretty much in your head, that stuff. The thing I had to learn was to, accept the discomfort of what those moves bring. So physically, literally the discomfort, like my first two weeks of boarding school were terrifying. I was in such a new environment with people who had, you know, wealthy backgrounds and life experiences and way better education than I had. So I was like, I was like literally nauseous every morning um, before I'd go to my first class, which was kind of a remedial science class because I hadn't had any science. And um, for two weeks, I existed like that thinking, what, did I make the biggest mistake in the world? Mm-hmm. And that, but that was a less, that was kind of a gift over the long haul because I realized at a young age that good things often exist on the other side of that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And that I think a lot of people who don't take risks aren't willing to walk through that fear and that discomfort. And that leaves them disappointed. They have regrets. And I've learned to accept it almost as a positive. I mean, I don't like feeling crappy, but 
I realize when I feel that, and I still feel it in my stomach, oh, what what is this telling me? What am I about to do? And I can usually get to understand it. And then then I let my head take over, actually. So the stomach's telling me, radar, radar. But then I say to my head, through my head, like, okay, you're going to do this thing that's risky. What's the worst thing that could happen? Mm-hmm. And I let my head work out all of that. And usually that calms me down. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. For instance, when I started this business, my brother said, well, what if it fails? I mean, it sounded like a crazy, hard to understand idea. And he loves me and didn't want me floundering. And my head said what I believed. Well, I'm not going to be unemployable. Mm-hmm. I, I can get a job. You know, like I can handle the embarrassment and all that. That'll be no, that'll suck. But I, I won't be wearing a barrel, you know, with a, you know, begging on the streets. I'll be okay. Yeah. And that's great advice because, you know, people, you know, my background as a recruiter, people would say, oh, it's what about the risk? I'm like, well, what's the risk? You know, like you're actually probably making yourself more employable by having that experience that what you're going to learn over two to five years, even if the company doesn't pan out. So right, I totally, totally agree with that way of thinking. And you now, don't want the, um, the what if on your tombstone, yeah. you know, your little, your figurative tombstone. And I mean that in professional and personal, you know, circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now what led you to study industrial design at university of Michigan? I, um, I had put myself on kind of an art diet when I went to school because I had done a ton of art at that cool high school. And I finally let myself take a sculpture course. I was walking down the halls of the art and design building and I saw this eye height um, glass enclosed showcase with a bunch of models of small appliances and tools that students had made, as you learn in design school, how to, you know, 3D render something. And I said, what the heck is that? Who gets to do that? (laughs) Because immediately I understood that this was a a collision of creation and business, right? Nobody employs you to create an unsaleable power tool. So you have to understand the market and the customer, but also the technical capabilities of the company and make something of all that, like literally take a blank screen and do something. And that just immediately... Like I knew oh, I would be good at that. I would like to do that. So then I started pursuing that degree, applied to, to get into the program. That's great. And what'd you do after undergrad? Because uh, you did eventually go to B school at HBS, but um, I guess, you know, take us down the path there. Yeah, I, I did um, work as an industrial designer for two technology companies, uh, one in Detroit and one in Boston. So I was designing uh, in the first case, Teller um, like banking equipment. And then in the second case, uh, we were actually working on one of the world's first portable computers. And my job was actually more the packaging than the computer. So I was doing what I, I was living the dream in terms of um, what I set out to do. The part of the dream I didn't understand when I set out to do it was that um, at that stage, business was not as prom understanding of the role of design, strategic role. Mm-hmm. designers were not were, were seen as sort of making things pretty and weren't um, the Johnny Ives type people, you know, like Apple type people yet. And I was too ambitious to be limited by that general misunderstanding in the business community. That pissed me off. You know, I wanted to be able to be anything in a company. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I got the MBA. MBA. It was, I was the first designer to ever go to Harvard Business School I didn't know anyone who'd ever gone there, but um, I knew it'd be armor, like, and uh, legitimacy and credibility for me, not only, you know, in a normal career progression, but also I expected I would do some unconventional things in my life, and I wanted a ticket back to the island, and I knew that that would be that. Got it. Now, after graduating from HBS, you decided to work at a startup design firm, I'm sure most of your colleagues were going off to investment banking, management consulting, the traditional career path. So you decided to go the startup route. Like, I'm sure everyone was like, what? What are you doing? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I didn't do recruiting on campus. And you're right. The majority of the students, we were the peak year at the time for um, the two careers you mentioned. And so uh, the third choice was sort of Procter & Gamble and General Mills and, the you know, the, the large consumer brands or or car companies. I didn't, I didn't do any of that. I, um, 
I just knew I loved design so much. Like I wasn't trying to get away from it. I loved the creation and the product engineering, everything. So I started looking at um, the this emerging field of consultancies in this area of product innovation. And the two that were most prominent um, at the time that I ended up joining one of them were the one I joined, Continuum. It was called Design Continuum. It's still thriving. It's still a very important uh, firm. And then um, IDEO emerged. It didn't exist. Uh, it was just behind Continuum, but they emerged and definitely have a higher profile than Continuum. So I joined in the on more the business side, um, being that translator between the clients and the businesses and, and our capabilities. And I brought in all the business or, or most of the business for five, my five years I was at Continuum. So one of the projects that you did work on that you brought in was the iconic Reebok pump sneaker. So I was curious about that. Was the Reebok have this idea that they brought to a design firm? They're like, hey, can you make this happen? Or like, what, what stage was their thinking in, in, in that sneaker? So they uh, had an internal employee who had proposed this idea of essentially, um, for people who don't know, the pump shoe, ultimately it had internal air bladders that increased stability and customized the fit and increased performance. It started with a basketball shoe. Mm -hmm. And um, they had this idea kicking around and Paul Fireman was driving everyone crazy because the engineering of that shoe, the, the capabilities um, that were required didn't exist in the company. And I tripped on the project because um, the head of design at, at Reebok had approached us asking, he was having trouble recruiting designers and he was looking for a little advice on how to hire them. And, you know, being a consultant, I, I said, I'm going to actually meet him. I'm not going to just send him an email. And I met Lou Panachone was his name. And I kind of asked him what his problems were. And he mentioned this, you know, driving him crazy problem of getting this shoe into, you know, into design and engineering. And well, that was like such a ramp, you know, kind of was like a super highway to us being helpful because think about making uh, air bladders in shoes. These are, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's an air system that was very similar to the kind of things my existing company, my, my existing clients were asking for in blood gas monitors. Our company was really good at um, medical equipment and instrumentation. We knew how to move fluids and airs and high volume disposable parts. And like we were the match made in heaven to engineer this shoe. And the only leap I had to make was to recognize that. So um, we, you know, ended up going from a conversation about how do I recruit into let us help you. And we engineered the the Reebok pump shoe. That is amazing. Yes, I remember them well. Put my owned... uh, put my first co child through college because I worked on commission. <laughs> <laughs> it was a huge success. And I was jealous because all my friends had them, but I, I didn't, unfortunately. I was bummed out. But Oh, uh, your parents were mean. I know, I know. I never had an Atari either. I had a computer instead. <laughs> well, that was better, right? It was. It, it all worked out in the end. <laughs> so, what did you have? Like a Commodore? Like I had a Texas Instruments TI-994A. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Good for you, though. That was way better than yeah. games. I never, I never had the intellectual horsepower to write my own code, but I would buy books that had the code pre-written for you for games. So I would code from the book and then play the game afterwards. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was good. Now, uh, in your career, you had the opportunity to work with, you know, someone who's very well known across the, you know, the whole country, but also specifically the tech industry. So Meg Whitman actually lived in Boston for at least a couple stretches of time with uh, some iconic brands like Stride Right, Keds, Hasbro, PlaySchool that are all kind of matched together as far as Stride Right being part of, or Keds being part of Stride Right, I think, I'm, and yes. then PlaySchool being part of Hasbro. So anyways, you had the opportunity to work with Meg, who... Uh, obviously, has gone on to to, to to amazing things of you know being CEO of of eBay. Um, what did you learn from her? Oh, she. Um, I learned sort of a clarity of thinking and priorities. So she came. I, I worked for first at Keds, and then subsequently two other companies that you mentioned. 
And she came in and um, quickly, like a consultant would do, because she was the first um, female partner at Bain, actually, in San Francisco. So she had a consultant's mindset. And she quickly assessed our capabilities, our gaps, and set very clear priorities. So I learned this, the, how important it was that kind of simplicity in the sense of also having our back in terms of working for her, in terms of her understanding where the resources were needed. Um, whenever I was always her utility player, no matter what my title was. So I did these large, complex kind of go fix it problems projects and they were expensive and took time. And I loved that when we would set out on one of those projects, we would sit down and do something that she called blank sliding, which was like a consultant would almost design the slide deck they're going to give the, cons the client right at the start of the project. And each slide would be blank, except it would say like, here's the analysis I need to do, or here's the, the hypothesis we're testing. And I could work with her on that literally like physical blank slide, we would like literally take, you know, copy paper and create this empty slide deck and know, you know, we were aligned on what I was doing. So I could run off and do all these things for weeks or months without a major check-in. So that was a big thing I learned from her. I also learned um, we had a lot of blows. The wind was always in our face at the companies I worked for her at. So things didn't go well all the time. And um, I learned this sort of, okay, what did we learn and bounce back? which was a great entrepreneurial skill. Like, you know, let's just, okay, let's not, let's not dwell on it. Let's keep going. Um, I learned to laugh in meetings, like how important that was. She's, you know, a meeting with Meg is a lot of laughter. I learned um, she was great at getting people to dig deep for new ideas in a meeting and then continually pointing back to that person and crediting them. And it's, you know, if you've raised children or a dog, this Pavlovian, you know, input, output, you know, behavior response, well, that's a great thing to do, right? When a young person who's maybe in their first job out of college has an idea and this person like Meg says, did you hear what Henry just said? That's brilliant, you know, and every time the idea came up, well, when like Henry told us, well, Henry's going to come into the next meeting wanting to do that again and again, and everybody else in the room wants to be Henry. And it's so it's so free. It's free. Right. It's it, it's a free thing you can do um, to recognize ideas, even if you can't pursue them to recognize them. She she loved that kind of riffing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after some time, you went on to be the uh, president and COO of a company called Ziggs that was actually competing against LinkedIn. Like the, the two companies were like starting up around the same time. Right. Yep. And um, same objective, a professional social network. So, you know, nobody heard of Ziggs. We were sold to reputation.com. So you know who won the market. Um, but it, they were both, um, in, in some ways, I thought our, our project at Ziggs was, was better. And we were both going off after a really um, rich opportunity, a huge market opportunity. Um, but the lesson I learned there you know, it was my first software company. I was president for a software company I, I had run. So I learned a lot about like that, just the basics of that. But on the entrepreneurial front, the CEO and founder was very generous with his lessons learned. He had taken a company public. His name's Tim DeMello. He had taken um, a company called Streamline Public, which was in the infamous web van um, genre, web van being infamous for raising $800 million and going bust, Streamline was much smarter company, but still they got caught up in the dot-com bust. So he'd been through a lot and he was very generous with his lessons. And the, and the one that I saw playing out live before my eyes was how hard it is to compete in an undercapitalized company. Mm -hmm. um, we were angel funded. You, you can bet your, you know, last dollar that, that LinkedIn was VC funded pretty quickly. You right. know, they, they didn't have the, the journey through the desert as long as, you know, an angel fund company would. So it was kind of that. And then I would say also just Boston versus San Francisco. I hate to say that because we're here and I love operating in Boston, but he had, you know, the better network to, yeah. to our own networks. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the investment climate was very different then too, versus what it is now of, you know, yeah. it was almost, you know, prosumer-ish and, 
you know, yes. I'm sure investors in, in Boston were a little hesitant to make a big bet on something like that. Yeah, we were still coming off our, you know, enterprise heyday, I would say. We hadn't we hadn't really fully participated in the dot-com boom anyway. Mm-hmm. So we sort of missed a lot and and we're playing catch up, I would say. So then you went off to start your own company. So what was the aha moment behind starting the Gromit? Well, I mean, honestly, the aha realization for the business happened when I was at Play School with Meg because I noticed that our best products weren't making it to market. Like we had wonderful R&D capability, but we kept producing pretty much the same line, even shrinking line. And I asked her, what's going on? This makes no sense. And she said something so simple. If Kmart, Target, Toys R Us, or Walmart don't want this new toy, we can't make it. Because what was happening was um, until fairly recently, specialty and independent retailers were the test bed for new toys. And those channels were shrinking. The, you know, this was in the still sort of more positive heyday of big box growth. And toys weren't that important to those, the three of those four stores. And um, so it was just kind of, I thought the way of the world, I was pissed off about it, but I didn't see any fix. And um, then fast forward to running a social network and leaving that company, I realized that I understood as an early pioneer in social media, the benefit of creating a community, how to do that. And I thought, wait a minute, what if we skip right over those four toy buyers and bring these innovative products that are, you know, coming out of the woodwork um, from all kinds of places. This is 2008, um, seven and eight straight to the people. It's, you know, kind of vaguely socialist, skip those buyers, just go straight to the people and see what they say and give them a quick little video that made that accessible and easy. And I knew as opposed to when I worked at Play School or had didn't have a lot of insight for small business, I understood that technologies like 3D printing and just literally the platform of the internet were going to make it kind of a, a third industrial wave, as Chris Anderson calls it, where the tools to create products were becoming cheaper and more accessible. So therefore, people would create products. It's That's a safe bet. And I knew the supply would be amazing, which it has been. It has, from day one, never been a problem for this business to access great innovation. And how do you just, because you feature a product a day still, right? That's, yeah. How do you decide which product to feature? Because I would imagine, you know, that you've built this brand, the Gromit, that you get lots of interest of, you know, people wanting to have their product demonstrated. Yeah, that that started, they started flowing in right away. And, you know, and, and when we were really tiny, we got to launch some huge, pro, now huge products like um, Fitbit and SodaStream and OtterBox and Bananagrams and Swell Water Bottles, lots and lots of name brands that were working with us and we were too tiny to matter. But um, the reason they did, and the reason we still have I will answer your question about how, but like the supply side was, it was very, it was and is very unique for a company to have a a very engaged, very desirable community and a company that would tell their story well and make something like Fitbit understandable. It was very hard to understand. None of us had IoT wearable products at the time. It was the first one, well, we'd seen two. So it was we were playing this like translator of products to a very exciting audience, uh, exciting to the company's audience. So the f- products are flowing in. We see about three hundred a week, and we launched wow, three hundred a week. Yeah, three hundred launched six. So that's under three percent. Um, and um, the criteria, I will say, we we carefully evaluate probably thirty a week. So you know we're not getting samples of three hundred products, but we get samples of about 30, 20 to 30 a week. And we're looking for two quick, easy cuts on, on, on the decision. And then a harder one, the quick, easy are because we've seen so much, does this product really have a distinction in the world? Is it really innovating in some way in its category? That's not as hard as it sounds because we've seen so much. And then second, is it, um, is it already well-known? Cause that would be a disappointment to our community if we launched 
you know, too often things that a person already knows. Mm -hmm. That's, that's pretty fast. What's slow and harder is to get a sample, to test the product, to see if it lives up to its promises, and also to make sure that it represents one or two or three values that our community cares about. Because you can filter products by values. And by that, I mean, is it made in the USA? Could be one value. Is it um, a social enterprise? Is it created by an underrepresented entrepreneur? Is it, does it have a lifetime guarantee? Is it something that is good for a sustainable lifestyle? So we have 10 of these values. And, um, and those we also, you know, kind of vet for because we knew even in, especially in 2008, that um, when the world was so scary, that people were looking for people and products and companies they could trust. So those values became very central right away. Now that's the supply side, but what, what about the demand side? So you're building out this double-sided marketplace, it's consumer, you're doing video early, early, right? Like video is yeah. all over now, but you were doing it really early. So how did you build up the actual consumer, like the, the buying side? That was so hard. So hard. I imagine. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I felt like, you know, we, we be, when, it, when a, a, a young consumer product comes along, we become, you know, their friend and their megaphone and their Sherpa and their amplifier. I wanted an amplifier for us. I needed Gromit for Gromit, right? There, was, there wasn't anything like that. Product Hunt didn't exist. They might have been useful if they had existed at the time. Sure. Um, so that was a slog. That was super hard. And, and there's no magic. It actually took capital, I would say, because um, even though our media and our stories and our discoveries are really wonderful, it's still kind of a mouthful to understand Gromit. We weren't a deal a day site, which were all the rage at the time in our early days, flash sales. So you kind of, even to this day, kind of have to say to your friend, oh man, they have the cool stuff. You have to just go check it out. You know, it could be anything. It could be a dog toy. It could be an outdoor gear. It could be a car accessory. Just go check it out. And you're like, what? You know, kind of, kind of, I know somebody told me, you're like Spotify for products. You know how Spotify helps you discover cool new yeah, music? You're like yeah. Spotify for products, but Spotify didn't exist back then either. <laughs> so honestly, you know, I didn't find that viral coefficient that made everything easy. Never, <laughs> never, ever, ever. It became, you know, let's figure out how to market this business. And we landed on um, email as to this day, still a really wonderful mm -hmm. um, channel for us. So we had to figure out how to acquire email subscribers and we, we landed on a pretty good route in 2010. So two years into the business and then every time I had five bucks to scrape together, that's where I'd put it, you know, right into acquiring subscribers because I felt that was our future to have media we could, you know, kind of own without the cost going out of, out of, you know, out of reach mm -hmm. and where we could have permission to be in a person's life every single day. We always yeah. had really great email open rates and still do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to acquire customers through, the social networking channels like Facebook so expensive and yeah, you know, like it just now uh, it, what's so ironic is I didn't anticipate email being so important. I anticipated yeah. Facebook being our major channel. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I'm a pioneer in 2008 social media. None of my friends know about Facebook, but I can understand where it's you know could be useful. Mm -hmm. And they were just starting to allow people to post into you know a person's newsfeed and companies. And for a brief moment, it was pretty open when I was starting the company, they, they clamped down pretty quickly. Um, and that was really disappointing um, because I thought, oh man, I found, you know, I know a secret. Nobody else knows. This, this can take a long time before brands find Facebook. I didn't count on Facebook being so smart so fast, you know, that they, they know, they know how to regulate like the water company, you know, like they know what you're using and they know, you know, what they can charge. Totally. Now we started off by talking about your shoes and the, you know, the, the challenging environment, like you started this company during the, you know, economic meltdown pretty much. So how did you go about keeping the, the company afloat in terms of fundraising and like, what were those milestones? And then ultimately Ace Hardware acquired a majority interest in your company. So yeah. like, how I know that's a lot of years summarized in one quick little snapshot, but you know, I'll do it. There are three phases of financial phases of company angels, 
one uh, strategic in Tokyo and then Ace Hardware in terms of financing. And um, Plan A, I'll tell you what Plan A was and what you know reality was. Plan A was raise a million in angel funding, you know, get some traction in early promising user economics, raise a five million dollar venture capital Series A, make sure the business is scalable. And then, you know, figure out the, the ultimate further financing to scale if there was something to scale. And that didn't happen. What happened was I raised um, $350,000 just before Lehman Brothers collapsed and, and we launched just after they collapsed. And I had to decide, do I give the money back or do I keep going? We hadn't spent hardly anything. I decided to keep going. I was in that, um, well, first time founder, but also like, super excitement. You know, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to the world at all. I was just working. So I was not as sensitive to the crash as, you know, I would have been if I were living a normal life. And, um, and I thought the people who were like putting their businesses on ice were wimps. I really literally said that. What wimps, you know, this is the best time. Let's go. Cab will be cheap or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. There won't be as many startups, but that's, that's only true if you do have capital, like access to capital gets really hard. So ended up plan A became plan B. I raised over four years, $4.4 million in angel funding. That is a very hard road because it tends, at least my case, it came in dribs and drabs. So you can't really make big commitments, big hires. I am so grateful to those angels because none of them expected to be carrying the company for four years. I took them out to the tip of their skis. Big shout out to two in particular, um, Jill Priadel, who was also the second investor in Zipcar. Um, she's invested in one of the hot companies in Boston when it was similar to us called Easy Cater, mm -hmm. first investor. Wow. Um, and also Peter Lynch, the famous Peter Lynch was in that um, leadership, angel leadership mode of the company. Second phase, uh, Rakuten, a Japanese company, um, hard to describe, but it's sort of like a mashup of Amazon and about 50 other businesses in Japan. And um, they did a Series B and took a majority stake when we met performance milestones. And then Ace Hardware replaced them last year, took out Rakuten. Which obviously was a perfect fit because Ace Hardware is known for local business, right? Yeah. Uh, not you know, the big Home Depots of the world. So yeah. Uh, it's a co-op. Did you know that? It's it's all locally owned. And um, literally, there are only 100 corporate stores out of their 5,000. The wow. only people who own shares in the company are the people who are standing behind that register, the store owners. So it's it's a really special model, super successful, eight years of same store sales growth. And there's a lot of product compatibility, believe it or not, between Gromit and Ace. Um, about half of what we launch makes sense in an Ace store. And the other half makes sense with our other wholesale customers. So, you know, along the way, we started a wholesale business that um, that's how we met Ace. We were business partners. Um, we had 250 Gromit branded displays in Ace stores. And the turns and the response to the product were, were so good that we ended up having an investment discussion. You you talked earlier about your experience at you know Hasbro and you know that the big retailers were the ones that were controlling what was purchased and what was not. Now those retailers, one being Toys R Us, is no longer in existence because Amazon, right? So yeah. so what? How, how do local retailers like? What's the current state of like um, local business as compared to the big boxes? But now the overarching Amazon. There are some bright spots. Um, independent bookstores are actually growing, believe it or not. You know, the first category that Amazon went after actually has some real viability again. Um, and I think the bookstore model is probably one that's transferable to a lot of local retail. A big reason why they do well is um, creating a sense of community, whether it's through um, author signings. Like I'll be doing, I'm I'm actually releasing a book next year, so I'm gonna I'm gonna live that firsthand. Um, you know exciting. they, yeah, they, you know you can see how like the one I go to in Porter Square Books. If I if I want a book, they get it in just a couple of days. So it's as fast as Amazon. They have very good supply chains for getting the books now. Um, but the sense of also discovery when you go in the store. Um, Seth Godin said something really interesting to me when we were talking about Amazon. He said, you know. 
people love to drink alcohol and, and certainly, you know, people want to drink beer at home, but bars are never going to go away. They deliver something different, same, same glass, you know, bottle of beer, but they deliver something different. And um, that sense of discovery and knowledge that a local store owner can have is, is very real. It's, it's um, with Amazon, you know, you, you should know what you want to buy. You, it's a search and destroy type shopping Mm -hmm. and you don't, um, you don't expect Amazon to help you really discover anything or validate anything. That's not their promise. Whereas a local store owner will do that. And people do respond to that. One of the things that entrepreneurs struggle with is um, getting attention. So press, but I've seen, uh, you know, the grommet and you being featured in you know, all the major publications, Inc and fortune. And, um, you know, a startup in Atlanta did a great video profile on you, Cabbage. So uh, it just seems like you've done a great job of marketing, um, you know, the Grommet as a brand, plus you as an entrepreneur. What advice would you have for founders are trying to accomplish something similar? Uh, I have a playbook. And what I um, started doing in the early days of the business, we had no marketing, you know, team just hardly. And we certainly had no PR, you know, effort that we could bank, bankroll. And I just started um, paying attention to 10 or 15 journalists whose work I really liked. And I would genuinely engage with them by, you know, commenting or sharing their articles. And in some cases, I started sending them story ideas that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the grommet. And basically building, not I wouldn't quite call it a relationship because they were virtual relationships, but you know, being somebody useful to them. And you can't do that for more than 10 or 15, then, you know, you'll be doing that all day long. I really was thoughtful about it. And that's, um, I remember um, our first big coverage was by Wade Rausch when he was at Xconomy, which is a publication I really was admiring at the time. And he said he wanted to do a story. And I actually tried to dissuade him. You know, like, oh, I don't think we're fit. And, you know, like, I made him work for it almost. So sometimes I wasn't necessarily trying to get a story. I thought we weren't ready for them, but he was so thoughtful. He wrote one of the best pieces to this day. Um, And then we had a really great piece in New York times in 2010, that was Sunday business section, more than half a page. And that came about because I, I gave um, a comment to, um, I sent an email to the reporter who was writing this regular monthly column about a, a piece. And I mentioned this concept that we we own um, this trademark for this term citizen commerce. And those two words just caught her eye and she wanted to talk and get me as a source for her next story. And as we talked, she said, no, you're not going to be a source for next story. You are the story. You know, we're going to do a story on you because what you do is so hard. You know, I have to do once a month feature a product in the company. You have to do it every day. She respected the work. So it's that. And um, I think my blog has helped too. I'm very vocal about um, some aspects of entrepreneurship and especially about women's access to capital. And I'm willing to say things other people won't say about that and be really honest. I'm honest about being an older entrepreneur. I'm honest about a lot of things, partly because I'm not raising capital. Women get really, you know, entrepreneurs, forget gender, entrepreneurs get really shut down about being vocal if they're in the middle of raising capital about many things. You know, they have to, everything has to be great. Everything has to be perfect. When you're raising capital, you can't really show the underbelly of yourself or your company or your experiences. And I, I was freed from that once Rakuten invested and look out, like I said, whatever I thought, and I still do. Well, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs and more specifically women entrepreneurs that are out raising capital? Um, I would say one of the things that women, this is not blame the victim because, you know, the stats are pretty damning. Women only get 2.7% of venture capital. You know, that those are like fighting words. Like we should be marching in the streets because that's access to opportunity. That's, you know, deciding who else gets to be employed, you know, let founding teams tend to reproduce themselves if they start out, you know, very homogenous. You, you've got a homogenous company from the birth. So this really matters to all of us, all of us who want to work in cool companies and, you know, all of us being truly everyone um, who's qualified. So this really matters. And where I think women can can do a little bit better job in pitching, and I, I was slow to learn this, is um, 
I think we tend to be so rewarded in our careers for, for performance instead of potential. I mean, this, this has been statistically proven. Men get promoted on potential and women only get promoted on performance. Mm. You see the big difference in mindset? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's a good guy. He can do it. Oh, you know, she, look at what she did. She's, she never stops. Like mm-hmm. she's a machine. And so I think we have to be more like the guys in our pitching, like selling the dream, selling the big vision. Because what I didn't understand was how much an investor will give you a haircut, right? Um, so I would I would get out of the comfort zone of being sure you could deliver what you're promising because that is not the expectation of an investor. Their expectation is that, you know, you'll keep pushing hard and pivot and and readjust to get there. But your initial plan is, is probably not going to be the real plan. And I didn't understand that. The other thing I would do differently myself, and I would say this to other women, is um, claim your own grit, claim your own story. I, I, you know, some of the things you said at the beginning of this interview about sort of that, that grit or that independence or that drive, I didn't talk about that at all. I, I don't know why. I didn't ever tell anyone about my background or, you know. You, you run through walls. Like, the, like people would, should, you know, double down on investing in, in anything you do. Yeah. Because you're going to make it happen. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't talk about that. I just thought that was ancient history. And um, I know Sheila Marcello told me, she's the CEO of care.com that went public when she was in this you know early stage of her business. One of the ways she she handled that, because she's a petite Asian woman who could, you know, face a lot of negative stereotypes. Um, she her one of her favorite hobbies is race car driving. So she would you know, and she has a lot of grit in her background too. So she put both those things on the table as quickly as possible in an early meeting where a, the race car driving made her sort of relatable in a way, you know, like, Whoa, I wouldn't do that. She must, she's something, you know, and then she put her real story on the table, which is very impressive in the grit sort of category. Right. And you've obviously accomplished a lot with the grommet, but um, if you, if you could select one thing, like what would you say would be your, your greatest accomplishment yet your biggest mistake? Um, well, when I look outside of the company, I cannot tell you the gratitude I get from the 3000 companies we've launched. We get love letters all the time. I had someone in my office yesterday, you know, saying, if you ever open in Canada, I'll ditch what I'm doing. I want to be, you know, Canadian grommet. What you've done is so unique in the world. And this is a maker. This is somebody whose business we've directly helped, but they don't see the likes of us, of somebody who, a company that will go to the links we do to help another business. So we've created thousands of jobs, that tons of economic opportunity. And we've and we've prevented a lot of super innovative products from hitting the dustbin because they just couldn't survive without, you know, the 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 credibility and attention we got them. So that's what I'm proudest of, I suppose, on the outside. Um, on the inside, I think I just told you my biggest mistakes. I, while I, I can't take responsibility for the financial crisis and for coming up with an idea earlier than, you know, the market might have understood it, I would have I would pitch the business differently and myself differently. I think that was a mistake. One of the things I noticed, and this is a trend that you're seeing with lots of direct to consumer brands, is actually a physical store like retail, right? So the Gromit actually opened a store and is it the Natick Mall? Yes. Yeah. So how, how is that experience as far as running an actual physical store versus, you know, an e-commerce site? Oh man, it's a, it's such a different world. Like we, we are not retailers and we did it partly, um, you know, I think of us as first as like great at curating and, and media. Like that's what I, I think of. And yes, we have e-commerce operations, but there's some boilerplate stuff to that. You don't have to invent. But, you know, curating great products, telling your stories, that has nothing to do with running a store. And um, and we had to learn a lot, you know, that just the, the sheer like basics about cash management and inventory management and, uh, and, you know, security and all those things we didn't know. They're not fun to learn. They're unsexy. But what we were looking to learn and what we have gotten a lot of benefit from is to understand how our products do perform at retail, because, again, we have a wholesale business. And you can ship a product e-commerce in a poly bag, like no packaging. Mm -hmm. If the product is what you promised, no harm done. You cannot sell a product in a poly bag. And let me tell you, the the earliest products, the most exciting ones that come in the door here, have little to no packaging. 
Mm-hmm. It's not what they're thinking about when they're inventing the product. And, you know, especially if they're only selling direct. And so the packaging and the presence of the product and, and whether it's a full line, like a single tiny product sitting alone, squeezed between other products has a much harder time than something with a full line as well, or three or four facings, as you would call it in retail. So we learned to, we've been learning a lot about that, which is really helpful. We can go to Ace Hardware and say, this is, this is our data in Natick you know, because it could be very different than our online data. Um, or we could just give the makers guidance for the next round of packaging because we've seen in real world how it holds up or how it communicates. And that is an area where makers tend to iterate pretty quickly as they're packaging. It really stays stable. It's a fairly cheap area to inter- iterate. So it's, it's a good feedback loop for them. What about consumer in Boston? Where, where do you think that stands as, you know, compared to, you know, many, many years ago? Well, I'm still craving more of the winners, you know, the very, very visible winners that spin out, you know, other, you know, kind of well-resourced entrepreneurs, well-experienced entrepreneurs. So we're not there yet, but um, but I, I do think it's central to our success in the innovation economy because um, people love to work for, talk about support companies they can understand, you know, that their, their dentists can understand where they work and why they work there. And we need, we need more of them. I think there's plenty of pipeline. So, um, and, you know, in some companies that are past the pipeline stage, um, but I just crave more, 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 more. <laughs> it's definitely come a long way. That's for sure. Definitely. Well, Jules, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing your story, your words of wisdom and advice. Uh, the Gromit is hiring. Yes. So uh, if you want to take a moment just to share the details on that. Yeah, we have, um, we always have a senior um, software developer role open and, and we mean it. It's, it's, it's a job that we're always uh, looking for. We have um, people, a digital marketing strategist role open. We have a site operations role Um that's, that was coming to mind very quickly for me. We have some seasonal roles as well. If anybody's just looking for some holiday cash, because our, our customer support, you know, kind of expands a lot this time of year as it should. So, yeah. And um, a little commercial for you, Keith, you've always been really helpful to us. I love posting on VentureFizz. We get great leads on VentureFizz. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the uh, the support there. Uh, and yes, you can go to VentureFizz.com backslash the grommet to see all their job openings on their biz page. Cause you do the biz page. Like it's a little bit like grammatizing an employee, right? Employer. Right. As you were telling your story, I'm like, Oh my God, this is exactly what we do for companies. Yes. <laughs> we're we're right. the grommet for employment branding. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, you, that's why you get us. Cause you do it for employers. Yep. Exactly. The same thing. Totally. So, well, Jules, thanks again for taking the time. Thank you, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.